When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Well, welcome back to another episode of Parker's Pensies. This is a podcast where we explore thoughts in philosophy, theology, nature, and life. I love thinking about cool stuff, so come think with me. If you've been following along the podcast at all, you know that uh, I've had philosophers and theologians on, and each one of them has a different take on simplicity. And I go back and forth depending on the day, simplicity and trinity, and they're all the reasons why I need to affirm or disaffirm, not affirm, you know, let go of simplicity. So uh, today we're going to be talking a little bit more about simplicity and Trinity uh, explicitly, and I have a very special guest with me, Dr. Oliver Crisp, and uh, I'm a little nervous for this one. If you guys know him at all, you know he's a legend. Uh, Like half of my books in here are written by this guy or co-edited by this guy, so it's a really big honor for me. So without uh, further ado, let's bring him in. Dr. Crisp, thanks so much for coming on the podcast. Thank you for having me, Parker. I really appreciate it. Yeah, well, um, so yeah, like I said, a lot of these books, there's books all over the place with your name all over them, or if they don't have your name on them, they have one of your uh, paintings on the cover. (laughs) Really been taking over my library here. Mm -hmm. Uh, I wanted to ask before we get into simplicity and uh, Trinity doctrine from your recent work, uh, one of your recent works, uh, why'd you why'd you go into theology rather than philosophy or philosophy of religion? Yeah, that's a good question. In fact, uh, in a way, I didn't make that Mm. choice. Um, My PhD is in philosophy of religion. So Mm. uh, I started off um, as an undergraduate doing divinity, so theology, and I did systematic theology and church history. Then I just got more interested in the more philosophical questions, Mm -hmm. underlying theology. So I then did a master's degree in, in philosophical theology, and I ended up doing a PhD in philosophy of religion. So I just sort of drifted in a more philosophical direction the further I went on. Hmm. Um, so I I ended up with in philosophy of religion, but then, uh, I mean, really, my passion has always been about theological questions. Mm-hmm. And so it was inevitable that I would sort of swing back in a more theological direction. And I think what's happened is just that as I've um, gone on in my career, it's become clearer to me that what I want to do is theology informed by a particular philosophical tradition, you know, using those kind of tools, using that kind of sensibility and bringing that to bear on the theological task, but asking really properly theological questions. And the reason for that is just that I think that these fundamental theological questions are the most important questions there are, as far as I can see. I mean, if there is a God, then there's nothing more important than theology. You might think it's a big risk uh, asking the question, is there a God or not? And if you give the answer, no, there isn't a God, then I suppose theology might be the most useless subject. Mm-hmm. But um, if there is a God, then there's nothing more momentous than asking the sorts of questions that theologians do ask. Mm-hmm. 
And it's those sorts of questions that have always sort of kept me awake at night and made me, you know, want to get out of bed in the morning and get get thinking and get reading and studying and talking to people and teaching and so on. So and I've been very fortunate to be able to do that. So I think that's that's really what's driven me and the the other things I've done, the kind of philosophy I brought in. Well, recently I've studied uh, some uh, law as well. Mm-hmm. Um, those things have, have all been really um, pursued with a view to the kind of theological task. Yeah. Well, a- another interesting thing about your biography there, uh, you did philosophy of religion, but you did it uh, on Jonathan Edwards, uh, if I'm not mistaken. Was that your, di- your dissertation? Yeah, that's right. I did. I did. Um, it was a funny thing, actually, because when I was uh, early on in my graduate studies and doing my master's degree, I had wanted to study John Calvin, but I realized very quickly that there was this mountain of secondary literature on John Calvin that, yeah. that uh, in order to master that, it would take a lifetime in itself. And so I was scouting around for an alternative, and it, it turns out that when I was an undergraduate, I had the opportunity to study a little bit of Jonathan Edwards and, and got really hooked. Um, and... At the time that I went into graduate studies, the, the Edwards literature was still um, relatively small or compact. Mm-hmm. Uh, the, the, the Yale critical edition of Edwards' um, work was still being produced. And so mm-hmm. um, it still felt like it was something where there was work to be done. Yeah. And, um, and so I thought, sort of thought, well, let's, uh, let's give it a shot. Now, I've, I've, I've never regretted that decision. I think mm-hmm. it was a for me, it's been very formative to uh, to spend the amount of time that I've been able to spend with this, uh, well, with what my wife calls my dead friend, um, the, the <laughs> heroic parson of Northampton. Yeah. Um, so it's been it's been a wonderful journey, but it's it's one of those things where I kind of fell into it in a way, at, at <laughs> least in the first instance, and then then it just sort of uh, blossomed from there. Well, the the interesting thing about that is that you didn't you didn't really fall out of it either, but you have transcended what some fall into. Um, you know, you you do your work on a particular thinker, and then you represent that thinker the rest of your life. What does Jonathan Edwards say about this? And when you think when people think about Oliver Crisp, it's not just uh, he's an Edwards scholar. And so I have just a couple books here. You got this co-edited with Paul Helm. This right. is my first kind of introduction to you because I was really getting into Paul Helm and then some Jonathan yeah. Edwards. Is this one your dissertation or no? No, no, that was okay. that was post dissertation. Um, okay. My dissertation um, was a very short little book that was um, that was published to no great acclaim, um, uh, with the unlikely Harry Potter like title Jonathan Edwards and the Metaphysics of Sin. <laughs> um, but That's that book, held in your hands on Jonathan Edwards on God and yeah. Creation was um, something that I had been starting to think about when I was um, doing my graduate studies, but it t- took me 10 years to, to write that book because of you know, trying to figure out all the complexities of his thought. It took me a long time and lots of conversations with Edward scholars who were very generous with their time, mm-hmm. people like Kyle Strobel and Doug Sweeney and mm-hmm. um, and many others, Ken Minkema, people like that, who, who've been great help to me over the years, Michael yeah. McCormick and Jerry McDermott and people like that. So, I mean, the Edwards community is a very friendly, it's a small community, it's a very friendly community and people have, have been usually very, very um, generous with their time and willing to discuss things. We share a passion about uh, this kind of crazy 18th century and New Englander. And um, and so I've, you know, been very fortunate to have the sorts of interlocutors that I have over the years that have helped me to 
to keep keep my feet in that camp. But uh, at the same time, as you say, um, developing other interests as well. So I mean, that's been it's been fun to be able to do both. Yeah. Well, just uh, maybe some advice. Like, how how did you do that? Did did you go through the like the panentheism kind of stuff that you talked about in in Edwards, and then move from there to more? How did you move from like the historical theology, even though you're doing you know philosophical yeah. work with Edwards because he's a philosophical theologian? But how did how did you make that transition? Maybe it wasn't transition. You still have a foot in each camp, but yeah. how did you do that? Because I know so many people get kind of locked into yeah these camps. Yeah, it's a good question. I mean, I think it's a problem. I mean, isn't there wasn't a game plan? Let me just okay. say that. Okay. It wasn't like I mean, some scholars seem to have this um, way in which they've they've mapped out their progress, and this I'm going to do this, and I'm going to do that, and people like Richard Swinburne, you know, the story he tells about his career, it's almost as if, you know, from the get-go, he'd written down a list of things that he needed to do to get where he needed to get to, and he just took those steps and got there, and mm-hmm. my goodness, what a, an amazing impact he made. Yeah. Fortunately, that's not my story. I sort of, like, bumbled along, mm-hmm. and uh, in the bumbling, have fortunately come across people who've been a great help to me and um, enabled me to take certain sorts of uh, changes of direction sometimes uh, that have that have helped me um, going forward. And then, in some respects, I've been fortunate in the receipt of um, various sorts of jobs or funding to do things. So, for example. Uh, I'd done my PhD. It was on Jonathan Edwards. I was working on Edwards. Then I taught in St. Andrews, where I now am, for two years on a teaching fellowship, short-term contract. So I got a lot of teaching under my belt, and it broadens your horizons when you're having to teach, of course, Mm -hmm. hand-to-mouth stuff. Uh, And then at the end of that period, I was fortunate enough to win a a postdoctoral fellowship for a year at the University of Notre Dame and went out there. And as a consequence of that, I was then able to move into more constructive stuff and think about the incarnation and write my my first book on the incarnation, Divinity and Humanity. But of course, that wasn't me sitting down and having some grand scheme. It was me, um, you know, knowing that my two-year position at St. Andrews was coming to an end, I needed to do something else. This other thing opened up. I was fortunate enough to get it. Uh, and then I had the opportunity to do the studying that took me in a slightly different direction. So it's a, it's, it's a combination of different things, I think. Okay. Um, that And in many respects, it's uh, it's me just being fortunate to have certain opportunities given to me that I was able to use at the right time. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, there's, there's no there's no uh, formula there for it. Yeah. Um, so before we before we just get in, uh, I wanted to for for those uh, watching this on YouTube or something, our background. You might be thinking, what is going on with that? Well, that's uh, <laughs> that's a picture that Dr. Oliver Crisp uh, drew for or painted for uh, James Eglinton's new book, uh, Bavink: a Critical Biography. Yeah. And uh, that's kind of become the new the new uh, plaque, you know, if, if you write a really good uh, book on theology, it's not just some kind of award that they put on top of your uh, cover or anything. It's that Oliver Chris will, will paint a picture for your thing. That's the new goal. (laughs) (laughs) You're very kind. There's a couple more, actually, uh, I just grabbed, I I have more, but I just grabbed, I wanted to show the the folks at home that this guy is, uh, he's an artist as well as a, uh, as a thinker. And this one's my favorite cover. I used to just look at this one all the time. Uh, and I think you used that one of your books as well. This is Paul Helm's book, but yeah, yeah, that's right. In fact, that was the first book that I I, I had a, a, an image on. Paul, who was my doctor doctoral supervisor, um, suggested to me when he was writing John Calvin's ideas, uh, would 
would I be interested in putting one of my paintings on the cover of the book? So um, I'm very f- grateful to Paul for giving me the opportunity to do that in the first place, and then it sort of went from there. But uh, yeah, it was it was a fun thing to do. Yeah. Well, um, so now moving on to an- uh, analyzing doctrine. Did you do the cover for this? Is this you as well or no? I'm afraid it is. Yes, it is. <laughs> That's great. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah. Uh, well, so I wanted to uh, I wanted to cover it's it's toward a systematic theology and just real briefly yeah is this how do you think of this is this like a prolegomena to systematic theology i know it's not prolegomena like you know per se right. but how are you thinking what does towards a systematic theology mean yeah good so it's a stepping stone project basically i mean i think um i think what i'm doing what i was doing with that book was trying to do a series of kind of soundings if you like mm-hmm. Um, sort of get a sense of what uh, important structures would I need to have in place and need to have thought through in in order to then take the next step of trying to write something fuller and more properly systematic. And um, the Analyzing Doctrine book was the result of that process. And really, it was a process that was funded in large measure by a project that I was involved with at Fuller Theological Seminary in California, where I used to teach mm-hmm. for many years. Um, and there I was uh, involved with a, um, a, a large grant from the John Templeton Foundation that was that enabled us to get together a, a bunch of scholars, some PhD students, some postdocs. And uh, one of the things we did was we met together every week and we had um, a reading group where we'd read through key texts. Mm-hmm. And we had a writing salon, which is a rather pretentious name. Um, but what we basically did was workshop stuff that we were working on. And so um, alongside reading other people's work, um, they read many of the chapters of that volume. Um, and we talked through the ideas. And and so that really helped shape, for me, some of the um the sort of key thoughts that went into the, the final version of the of the project, but it was very much with a view to you know, there's a longer term goal, hopefully, of writing something more mm-hmm. like a dogmatics or a systematic theology. But in order to get there, there are there are certain sorts of intermediate steps you might want to take. Yeah, this was my attempt to take an intermediate step towards that goal. Okay, uh, I've heard I don't remember where I heard this, but I heard that systematic theology is a an old man's game or writing a systematic theology, you know, that's like, you want to do it at, at, at your, do we have to wait for you to become an old man here? Or are we, are we going to? Well, I'm on my way to being old. Uh, <laughs> I'm almost 50. But um, yeah, I th- well, I think there is something to that. I mean, in a sense that um, to write something systematic, you have to have accumulated, um, you know, views on a whole range of different theological topics and right. just working through that takes an enormous amount of time yeah. um so there's that uh and i think also often people aren't in a position to sort of reflect on theology as a whole until they've had enough mileage to be able to be in a position to do so um however it's also worth saying i think you don't want to leave it too late right um, I think there's something to be said for you know making us making a start and seeing it as a longer term project. And certainly, from where I'm sitting at the moment, I'm I'm seeing trying to do something larger like that as the the project of the next ten fifteen years of my life. We'll see. Who knows? I mean, that sounds a little grandiose, but <laughs> but hopefully, if I'm spared, um, that's um, the thing that I want to be turning my attention to as the next 
well, as the significant thing that will occupy my attention in the next 10, 15 years um, as I sort of beaver away here in uh, in Bonnie, Scotland. Yeah, well, that's, that's fantastic to hear. Uh, so so I wanted to talk about just two chapters, uh, and if we had time, a third, probably not, but um, I want to talk about your, your con- conception of divine simplicity and uh, yeah. chastened Trinitarian Mysterianism. And I kind of have this outline where we talk simplicity first, then Mysterianism, but you, you know, you're the expert here, you wrote the book. So should, should we talk about simplicity first and then Trinitarian? Should we mix them both? What do you... I don't, yeah, I do, I'm happy to do that. Yeah. Okay. Okay. So in in the in your chapter, you talk about um, three versions, and there's the maximal doctrine, uh, the minimal doctrine, and then the, the parsimonious, which is a I would say like a subset. I think maybe you said a, a variation of the minimal doctrine. Mm, yeah. Is that is that the right characterization, or am I missing a third one there? No, no. I think you probably you got got it right. I mean, I think I was just trying to give a sense that um, the the view that I'm trying to articulate falls somewhere in between these these sort of two poles, if you mm-hmm. like, and try and give a kind of framework for readers to um, see that there are different options. Really, mm-hmm. I mean, I think sometimes when one reads the literature on divine simplicity, one gets the impression that there is this monolithic thing called the doctrine of divine simplicity. That until recently everybody uh, agreed to and assented to, and then it's you know been criticised in, in recent times. But actually, as is often the case with these sorts of complicated academic questions, things are rather more complicated than that. Um, and in the history of um, Christian theology, there's there's lots of different um, sort of iterations of the doctrine of divine simplicity. Some stronger than others, some weaker than others. Um, and of course, there has been criticism of the doctrine, particularly in recent times, but much of that's not that new. There's been criticism of it in, in the past. Um, but there are particular ways in which the doctrine is, is being discussed today that make it a hot topic and, and an interesting prospect for theologians who want to cut their teeth on some particular thorny theological issue. Yeah. So can you uh, can you help us with, maybe we could start with like the maximal doctrine like what what is the maximum maximal doctrine of divine simplicity so i'm thinking the maximal doctrine is one which has the following constituents that god's simple in a very strong sense he is simple in this sense not simple as in foolish or stupid but simple in the sense that there's no complexity in his being right so you can't subtract anything from god god has and and is what he is essentially that is to say he can't gain or lose parts um, not only that, but the the maximal doctrine says that, um, in particular, when we think about the divine nature, who God is, or what God is, uh, and we look at the divine attributes, things like his being all powerful, all knowing, all seeing, eternal, all those sorts of things, mm-hmm. that though they seem like distinct things that we can predicate of God, it turns out that in reality, those things are not distinct with respect to the divine nature. His, in other words, his divine attributes imply one another to use a kind of technical term Um, but more than that they imply the divine nature so there's no real distinction in god between the divine attributes that he has and between those attributes and his nature in a way that there is with respect to creatures like you and i right so for example you know you might say well um my friend jones has a certain mass is a certain height has a certain hair color um, there are lots of things that you could, lots of attributes of Jones that you could use to describe Jones. Some of them will be essential to Jones. You know, if, if Jones loses those things, then Jones will cease to be Jones, like being human, for example. Other things Jones could lose and still remain Jones. So presumably if Jones had all her hair cut off, she would still be Jones. 
Um, even if some, she has some terrible accident in a, with a piece of farming machinery and lost an arm, she would still be Jones, just a mutilated Jones. Yeah. Um, but the point is that her attributes are distinct from one another. And they're distinct from Jones herself. You know, we can talk, we can predicate certain things of Jones, but we understand that they're distinct from Jones. <laughs> the point with the maximal doctrine of divine simplicity is that dis- that sort of distinction that we use all the time when we're talking about mundane things just breaks down when it comes to God. Yeah. God is so wholly different from, from everything that he's created. Uh, and his nature is so different from everything that he's created. It's just not the case that God has distinct divine attributes in himself or that those divine attributes are distinct from um, his nature, if we can speak of a nature of God. Now, of course, God appears to have distinctive divine attributes to us, mm-hmm. um, but that's just because of our um, finitude and you know, the fact that we're finite limited creatures, let's say. And it's also because we've got a limited vantage. In other words, we can only see certain things about God at any given time. So here's an analogy. Suppose you go to um, see Michelangelo's David in Florence, which is a you know wonderful and, and magnificent statue. And you you look at it from one vantage. Uh, well, you can only see one aspect of the statue from that particular vantage. You have to walk around the statue to see all the different aspects of the statue. In a sense, that's a bit like us with respect to God. We see certain things about God from the vantage that we have, but there are other things we don't see. Mm-hmm. With respect to God himself, those things are not different, but they're one in, in God himself. That's the claim. Yeah. So he's simple in a very strong sense that he doesn't, strictly speaking, have distinct attributes, and his attributes, strictly speaking, are not distinct from God's self. So he's when we say he's simple, uh, and we mean by that he's without parts, he doesn't have any parts whatsoever, it has in this, in this uh, strong doctrine this very um, important connotation that... <clears throat> There are no real distinctions in God aside from the um, the members of the Trinity. Yeah. Okay. And I've heard of. Uh, I mean, it's kind of cliche by now, but uh, often people will talk about uh, a light in a prism, right? So, like white light, and it contains all these colors inside of it. But it's not until it hits the prism that it, you you see the full rainbow on display. And maybe you know, creation is the prism, and God's the white light, and right. it's kind of an analogy for sure. For, yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah, I mean, these are all, of course, they're only analogies, and we're trying the best we can to to apprehend something that's mysterious. Um, And there's lots about the doctrine of divine simplicity, this kind of high-octane version of the doctrine that's sort of counterintuitive. Um, But defenders of that version of the doctrine will say, of course it's going to be counterintuitive because we're dealing with an entity, if we can talk about God as an entity, that is not a creature, there's a massive ontological gulf between God and everything that was created, and we can't bridge that gulf. So inevitably, our grip on the divine nature um, is going to be at the very least, uh, sorry, at the very most rather, partial and piecemeal. Mm-hmm. Um, and it would be surprising that um, when we're dealing with something as fundamental as God himself, our grasp of these things is going to fall short in some important respects. Yeah. Yeah. And it, and that totally makes sense. Uh, and that's, that transcendence something we'll get into, uh, which you talk about a lot in your Trinitarian right. mysterianism. Right. Uh, so how, how might, uh, how might the minimalist or minimal doctrine of the Trinity uh, differ than that maximal? Is the, is the maximal what people call the austere uh, simplicity? Is that the same thing? It might be, depending on what you mean by austere, but I certainly think that the maximal doctrine is the sort of doctrine that you'll find 
in historic defenders of um, divine simplicity like, for example, Thomas Aquinas. Okay. I mean, Thomas Aquinas is often pointed out as, as you know, being a, the great medieval theologian that he was, that he's the kind of high watermark of, of a lot of these sorts of discussions, historically yeah. speaking. And so that's the sort of view you'll find in, in Thomas Aquinas. Now, the minimal doctrine is sort of at the other end of the, uh, other end of the spectrum. And uh, the minimalist wants to say, well, when we say God is uh, simple, what we really mean is not that he's without any parts whatsoever, but rather that he's strongly unified in some sense. You know, there's something about his divine nature that means we can't chop him up into smaller parts. That much is true. Mm-hmm. But it doesn't mean that he's got no parts whatsoever. That's too strong a, a claim. So we want to say something weaker than that, something that allows us to predicate different things of God, and that doesn't have the consequence that in predicating those sins of God, we're committed to saying that those things don't uh, exist as different things in God, so to speak. Yeah. Um, so it's trying to create some space between the claim that God is unified in this very strong sense. God is one, if you like. Hero Israel, the Lord, our God, the Lord is one, is, is um, the great... Um, the Shema in the Old Testament um, is is wanting to say that on the one hand, but without some of the apparently counterintuitive consequences of the the kind of strong doctrine uh, of divine simplicity that uh, ends up with this notion that there aren't any distinct divine attributes in God, and there's no distinction between the attributes and the divine nature. Yeah. Okay. So, so um, would a minimal doctrine say something like God has? parts but they're inseparable parts you might say something like that yeah um you you might say that um you know um god's strongly unified that kind of language Mm -hmm. um but the distinctions that we see in god are not distinctions that can be hived off so you might still be committed to something like the claim that the attributes that god has are essential to who god is you couldn't you couldn't remove those without um ceasing to have god yeah but um they are nevertheless distinct attributes in god something like that okay and uh i could see someone saying well what what the uh what the the great writers of the confessions and and aquinas what they were getting at was uh something that can be picked out by by the minimal doctrine and really you know they they didn't mean something like the strong uh maximal doctrine in your in your lights here did they know what they were talking about? They knew that they wanted the maximal view, or is there ambiguity there that we can debate that? Well, as I said earlier, I don't think there's a single historical right. doctrine of divine simplicity. Yeah. So I think there are sort of variations on a theme, if you like, mm. um, and some are stronger than others. Uh, and as I said earlier, um, Thomas Aquinas is often thought of as the higher watermark because he has, you know, this strong doctrine that, that commits him to the various sorts of aspects of the the sort of um, stronger doctrine that I outlined. But there are some other uh, theologians who seem to me to me to be committed to a fairly strong doctrine of simplicity, but it's not necessarily identical to yeah. the view that Thomas Aquinas has. For example, someone like Anselm of Canterbury a few centuries earlier than Thomas Aquinas, who says a lot about divine simplicity, but it's largely a kind of what we might call an apophatic account of divine simplicity. In other words, rather than saying what God is, you approach God by saying what he's not. Yeah. You know, God is without composition, mm-hmm. something like that, rather than saying exactly what that lack of composition you know, turns out to be. Yeah. Um, so I do think that there are 
variations on uh, on a theme, but I do also think that for many of, of the historic sort of Christian theologians of the of um, of the tradition, they're they're sort of clustering around views, clustering around a sort of set of ideas um, that that most of them will t- take to be um, ideas that are not negotiable. Let's say, right? Yeah. Um, so the, the fact that that's now not the case and theologians regularly, um, attack divine simplicity or distance themselves from divine simplicity or even deny divine simplicity mm-hmm. is something that is, I think, noteworthy, a noteworthy, um, development in the Christian tradition yeah. in the modern period. Yeah. Okay. So, uh, just, just going back again to, to Aquinas, he's the, the high watermark. So uh, Anselm is more uh, apophatic. Is it right to say that Aquinas did cataphatic uh, theology when he's talking about he's actually presenting this is what simplicity is rather than uh, apophatic? I think, yes, in some respects. I mean, of course, Aquinas has a a fairly high tolerance for apophatic or negative theology as well. Negative theology here just meaning we approach God by saying what he's not rather than what he is. God is not limited. God does not have a body, those sorts of things. Mm-hmm. Um, so that there's that strand in Thomas Aquinas as well, um, because he's influenced by the tradition of so-called negative or apophatic theology, particularly people like Pseudodionysus the Areopagite. Um, but He's also willing to make certain sorts of qualified and careful apophatic, uh, cataphatic rather, claims. In other words, positive claims about who God is. God is this. God is like this. Um, but one must also um, bear in mind that for Aquinas, all our language about God is um, analogous. In other words, there's ways in which it's similar to the thing that we're describing with respect to God, but there's ways in which God is different from it. Mm-hmm. Um so for any attribute that, that applies to God on Thomas's view, uh, there's going to be ways in which it's similar to our mundane sense of that term. You know, I, you know, Jones is powerful. God is powerful. Well, there's a sense in which where Jones is some kind of creature. There's a sense in which there's commonality between those two descriptions of, of power in Jones and God, respectively. But there's going to be important senses for Thomas in which there's going to be difference between those two descriptions as well. Of course, Jones may be powerful to the extent that maybe Jones is a world world champion weightlifter or something like that. <laughs> but the power that Jones has is going to be, in significant respects, very different from the, the kind of power that we ascribe to God. So one always has to bear in mind that when um, Thomas is making certain claims that, that look like he's playing, making substantive and positive claims about who God is or what God is, um, that he's also couching that in this broadest, broader idea of religious language where he's, as it were, guarding against um, what he sees as the mistake of thinking that we can speak univocally about God. In other words, say that, you know, when we talk about power and Jones and power and gold, we're just talking about exactly the same thing. It's just that God has got more of it than Jones mm-hmm. had. Uh, And for Aquinas, that's going to be a mistaken way of thinking about the divine nature. And the reason for that is just that he has this this sense that there's this massive ontological gulf between God and his creatures, uh, which is another very traditional sort of a claim. You find that in Aquinas, you find that in Anselm, you find that in many of these classical theologians who um, proceed on the assumption that whatever they say about God, they're talking about something which is utterly unlike um, everything that's created. Right. 
Okay. So, so then moving to the, the parsimonious doctrine, uh, is this, would you call this your, your constructive take on this? Yes, I suppose it is my constructive take. Yes, yes. Okay. I mean, I don't know whether parsimonious is the best term for it, but that's the term I came up with at the time. But yes, it's a kind of it's kind of a, an attempted middle way, but it's it's obviously closer to the middle model than it is to the the kind of high octane or strong version. Yeah. Okay. And so uh, on this, then God is is he's metaphysically simple, but not absolutely myriologically simple. Right. Exactly. Can, can yeah. you parse that out for us? Sure. So uh, he's metaphysically simple, by which I mean he is not composed of more fundamental parts. Mm-hmm. So here's an analogy. We might think of souls, whether you think we, there are such things, just just go with it. Um, mm-hmm. We think of souls as metaphysically simple in the sense that you can't chop a soul up into more fundamental parts, right? Right, right. Or um, in physics, you know, physicists tell us that subatomic particles are metaphysically simple in that they can't be broken down into more fundamental parts. I mean, they have they have distinct properties like spin and mass, but you can't chop them up into smaller parts. And that's why subatomic particles are the sort of fundamental building blocks of, of the material world. Right. Uh, at least that's, you know, that's the story anyway. Yeah, today. Um, yeah. So, right. So, um you might say that just as a subatomic particle is metaphysical, as a metaphysical simple, it can't be broken down into smaller parts. And just as a soul is supposed to be a metaphysical simple, it can't be broken down into more fundamental parts. So similarly, God is metaphysically simple in the sense that he can't be broken down into more fundamental parts. So that's what we mean by this kind of metaphysical simplicity claim on on the view that I'm um, I'm, I'm outlining. Mm-hmm. So, um, so how would that differ from... So, so God's not absolutely myriologically simple, though. So, well, it's not absolutely myriologically simple. So, in a similar way to the subatomic particle, you might say the subatomic particle um, can't be broken down into more fundamental parts. So, it's metaphysically simple, but it does have different, distinct attributes that, that mm. we describe to it, like its spin and its mass. So, it's not absolutely myriologically simple, right? Because it's got properties that are distinct. Yes. Um, and what I'm suggesting on this um, way of thinking about divine simplicity is perhaps we can ascribe that, that sort of way of thinking to God. Now, with this important caveat, though, mm-hmm. okay, so yeah. let the reader beware. Okay. I am not saying that the, the parsimonious doctrine is the truth of the matter. I'm mm-hmm. not saying this is the right way to think about God's nature. What I'm saying is it's a kind of model um, it's a kind of simplified description of more complex data. That's what a model is in the sense that it's used often in the sciences today. Um, and you use a model like your model of an atom in a physics textbook in order to get some kind of conceptual grip on something that's really complicated and perhaps we can't get a grip on if we looked at it in its full complexity. Mm-hmm. The model helps us to get a kind of um, picture in our minds of what this thing is. And in a similar way, I'm suggesting that with respect to divine simplicity, the parsimonious doctrine may help us to get a conceptual grip on something with respect to God that doesn't have the costs of the strong doctrine and will give us a workable account of divine simplicity that we can use for the purpose of theology. And that's that's itself a useful thing. It may be, though, that the parsimonious doctrine is not the truth of the matter, all things considered. It may be the strong doctrine is the truth of the matter, all things considered. But if the parsimonious doctrine enables us to do our theologizing with a with a view that has less 
metaphysical costs or complications in the strong mm-hmm. doctrine, then it may have a kind of theologically pragmatic use, even if it's not strictly speaking the truth of the matter. And my thought is this, God is mysterious. Perhaps we can't get a very good conceptual grip on the simplicity of the divine nature. Um, perhaps there, there will always be problems besetting the sort of strong doctrine of divine simplicity that we can't figure out entirely, even if it's the truth of the matter. Yeah. So maybe we're better off working with something that's um, that's got fewer costs, metaphysically speaking, and that may be just as useful to us to do our theologizing, even if it turns out that it's only a proxy for the truth of the matter, a bit like your physics textbook um, picture of an atom is not actually what an atom looks like. Nobody's seen an atom, but it's a proxy for an atom, and we use it for certain um, helpful purposes in in pursuing science. Yeah. Uh, I, I love that de- depiction. I think that's really helpful. Um, and I think it's really it's it's really modest as well, or it's really, um, yeah, you don't, you're not trying to get out over your skis here. And, you know, this is exactly what it means. Uh, and I'm, I'm wondering... Uh, do we have anything more than models? Does everything come down to models? Like, is the is the maximal doctrine also a model, just a stronger conception yeah, that, of a model? Or what do you think on that? Question. That's a good question. I'm not sure that all the historic theologians who went for something like the maximal model thought of it, sorry, maximal doctrine, I should say, thought of it as a model. Mm-hmm. Um, I certainly do think that uh, the, the notion of models culled from or taken from the sort of philosophy of science is a is a helpful um, way of thinking about a lots lots of different things in theology and might well um, enable us as theologians to make certain sorts of progress in in rather difficult um, theological uh, problems that have been um, besetting theology for some time. So I, I think that it's got some value the, yeah. the language models. I'm not sure I would want to commit myself to the view that everything boils down to models. Yeah. I, I'm not sure I'd want to say that. But I do think that, um, that that the language of models and the concept of models has a certain theological utility that um, the kind of work that I'm involved with when I do analytic theology um, particularly prizes. Yeah, yeah. Okay, so uh, it reminds me of, of like C.S. Lewis's conversation of this where he talks about maps. He talks about like, you can look at a map of the ocean, but it's different right. than experiencing the ocean itself. I think right. that's that, that's also very helpful to, yeah, to think. Yeah, that's exactly right. And I think that's, that is a, that's a very good way of thinking about it. You know, I mean, you, you use maps for certain purposes, even though we know that they're proxies for the truth of matter. Yeah. Um, we know that, but we don't think, oh, therefore, it's a, this map is a waste of time. We think it's a proxy and it serves certain purposes. And for those purposes, it's a good thing. Yeah. Right? yeah. And we don't confuse the map with the sea. Right. Right. Um, so yeah. that's kind of what I'm suggesting we, we do with respect to this thorny question. Okay. All right. That that's helpful. So so then there's a, you, you address this concern from the sovereignty Asadi intuition, which I think is original to to planning. Maybe did, did he bring that up? Yeah. Um, and what what is that concern? Yeah. So um, I mean, planting is uh, probably the best known recent critic of divine simplicity, and in many ways, his um, lecture does God have a nature which was then produced as a little book uh, around 1980, um, set the scene for a lot of the subsequent work that's been done on divine simplicity. Um, And one of his concerns was to try and get at a version of the doctrine that he thought made sense. And ultimately, he ends up 
finding that um, the traditional way of thinking about the doctrine has some serious shortcomings. So he's a kind of critic, a friendly critic, but nevertheless a critic of the doctrine. Um, and one of the um, one of the sorts of approaches that he has is a kind of reductio ad absurdum. In other words, reducing to the absurd approach, he sort of says, well, look, um, if God has these different properties, like being all powerful and all knowing, and all these properties are supposed to be um, identical with each other and identical with the divine nature, uh, well, then that means that God's a property, but that can't be right. You know, mm -hmm. God's not a property of something else. He's, you know, presumably a uh, a substance, a person, something like that, in the same way that we are. Uh, and clearly we're not property. So that, that can't be right. There's something wrong with, with the doctrine. Now, related to that sort of central um, sort of objection, he has concerns about uh, divine sovereignty, God's sovereignty over all of the creation, and divine aseity, which is the doctrine of God's independence of the creation. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, the worry is that uh, the traditional doctrine of divine simplicity in some respects, enslaves God to his divine attributes because it makes of, uh, makes of God a property himself, right? Yeah. Um, so he says that, no, we've got to, we've got to preserve both divine sovereignty, God's um, overall uh, lordship over the creation, as well as his aseity, his independence of the created order. And uh, we have to have some account of God that uh, does that, that doesn't have these um, unfortunate consequences that the traditional doctrine of divine simplicity does does yeah okay and the the property question i think that that's a tough one because if god's you know god's not a property and i just want to say that but then also if then if god does have this nature if if god does have properties then you also get that problem of you know the boot bootstrapping objection it's like well are there just free-floating properties is there a platonic heaven above god that he's pulling his properties from Right, and that's also a worry about the. Uh, that's also a worry about divine sovereignty and aseity. I mean, so you might you might approach the problem something like this: um, Is God powerful in virtue of having the property of power? Hmm. If He's powerful in virtue of having the property of power, then it looks like uh, His power is, in some sense, dependent on Him instantiating this universal power that exists in some kind of Platonic heaven, independent of God. Mm -hmm. This this heaven of kind of uh, universals, you know, power, blueness, whatever it might be, that various actual things instantiate in some way. Uh, that means that God's not truly sovereign and, and God's not truly independent of um, everything else. And that seems to be uh, that seems to be a problem if we end up saying that God has these properties and these properties are identical with God. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, that does look like a problem if you construe the doctrine along the lines that he does. But as has been pointed out in subsequent work on divine simplicity, that's not really the way in which it's understood in much of the tradition yeah. uh, for various reasons. One reason is that um, that the many uh, of the traditional uh, theologians that he takes aim at would not have thought of the divine attributes as properties in the way that he's thinking of it. Um, and they would not have thought that the um, properties that God has, he instantiates in virtue of some platonic realm outside of God himself. Yeah. Uh, rather, they think that God's attributes are a, uh, a function of his, of his divine nature. Then there's something, you know, that, that arises as it were, um, this is not a very good way of putting it, but arises, as it were, from God himself. He doesn't instantiate certain things that exist outside of himself in some platonic realm. Um, 
it, at least for many of these thinkers, there's not a platonic realm that exists independent of God. Rather, yeah. all, the, all the things that exist, exist as a consequence of instantiating divine ideas. They're things that exist in God's mind. Yeah. Um, so it was just be a, it would just be a mistaken way of thinking about um, this to to characterize it in terms of um, of this sort of relationship between properties and, and the platonic realm. Yeah, well, it's it's interesting because it's it's the euthyphro dilemma just applied to a different you know attribute of God. Um, and so d- does this does this bring us to the truth maker solution? Is is this? We, I feel like we're kind of in the ballpark, but maybe not. Yeah, yeah. So, yes, the truth maker solution to the doctrine of divine simplicity that people like Tim Paul have um, pushed in recent times is, in a sense, about um, what makes it true that God has the attributes that he does. Mm -hmm. Those who adopt a sort of truth maker approach um, will say um, God is powerful in virtue of the fact that the, the power itself is grounded in God's nature, not in virtue of the fact that he instantiates by some kind of power that exists independent of God. So it's a way of expressing this fairly traditional sort of idea that the attributes that God has are somehow, in a sense, grounded in the divine nature, made true because of the divine nature, not made true because of something external to God, um, like the platonic heaven with uh, power out there somewhere that then God sort of instantiates. Yeah. Um, so that's that's the idea, as I understand it, that that um, God is powerful, and and the the, the the notion that God is powerful is true in virtue of the fact that um, that power is something which is um, grounded in the divine nature itself. Yeah, and that it's like a, it's it's like a, maybe William Alston's answer to the Euthyphro dilemma, or it's like the the Christian answer that there's there's a false dilemma, there's a third way. Right. And that goodness is God's, you know, God is, is goodness himself. And of course he doesn't act against his nature. Right. Do you, exactly. do you think, uh, you think this is successful here? Do you think the truth maker solution is successful? I like, I like it. And certainly um, I'd like it to be true. Yeah. Um, uh, but of course it depends on you um, being willing to buy into the sort of truth maker approach that yeah. this is an appropriate way to think about uh, the instantiation of certain sorts of predicates, mm-hmm. and that itself is controversial, philosophically speaking. Yeah. Um, but if you're willing to go that route, then this this seems like it might be a promising way forward. Certainly. Okay. So then, God's God's uh, attributes uh, would be like sui generis, and uh, because because yeah, he he he's not instantiating uh, a property, though we are. So that might right. even. If you do hold to a doctrine, uh, uh, some form of doctrine of analogy, it's like, yeah, that makes total sense. Yeah, I'm powerful, but not in the way that he is. He, you know, he's the truth maker for power itself. Right, right, exactly. Yeah, absolutely. And you might think, I mean, if you bring into this uh, discussion something like the the traditional doctrine of divine ideas or a version of the traditional doctrine of divine ideas, then um then god has power in virtue of the nature that he has um but we have power uh, to the extent that we um instantiate something or we exemplify something um that exists in the divine nature a kind of yes. divine idea that god himself has i love that we we've talked about it in the podcast a few times uh so my listeners will know that's that i love that idea i think it's really helpful uh it could be wrong and and i have to do more work thinking through uh yeah. Truthmaker theory and all that good stuff. 
it's complicated stuff and i mean it's, it's fascinating stuff of course um you know the the doctrine of divine ideas itself has um significant metaphysical costs but then any substantive metaphysical claim has significant right. metaphysical costs mm-hmm. and you, know, you just have to bite the bullet at some point mm-hmm. uh, and commit yourself one way or another there's no there's no there's no interesting metaphysical thesis that has zero cost yeah it wouldn't be interesting then yeah that's what you can live with basically that's really yeah. what I'm <laughs> that's right okay well uh so let, let's move into to chastened uh, trinitarian mysterianism sure. um we already talked about what a theological model is that, that was really helpful yeah uh, in, in your opinion uh why do, why do you think most of the current models or doctrines or conceptions of the the trinity um so far have failed well um here here's a potential um shortcoming of the book i think um it was pointed out to me by some friends afterwards that i needed to be a little bit clearer about what i want to say about mysterianism relative to the existing models of of the trinity because i suppose you could be a mysterian and plug that into one of the other models i mean it's not yeah. not necessarily either or right um so that that's something that probably i should have um, made clear in the book um i think you said that towards the end of the chapter as well that that yeah i, yeah. I did say it but perhaps not clearly enough is my point okay. I, I need okay. to make it clearer going forward um but i think one of the problems with a number of the ways of approaching the the doctrine of the trinity is that um it it they, the the accounts tend to say too much yeah and um, that's really what my concern is i think so um and in saying too much you, i mean they're, they're often saying too much for laudable reasons you want to try and say something about the doctrine of the trinity rather than say nothing just gazing at the right. um, but of course the doctrine of the trinity is is a very difficult thing and it is a mystery that's the thing that we have to bear in mind when we we're, we're, we're doing our theologizing is that we're dealing with something that's going to remain a mystery to us namely the divine nature whatever we say about it and if we think that we've dissolved the mystery by providing an account of say the doctrine of the trinity that that uh, you know irons out any of the problems with say the, the how god can be both one and three at the same time the so called Threeness, oneness problem, then probably we've made a mistake somewhere along the line. I I found that so helpful. That was so huge for me uh, when I read it. it and I've uh, I really love James Anderson's work, so it yeah. was, he totally primed me for for your chapter here. But yeah. when I heard that, I was like, yes, I'm grabbing that because if there's a if there's a model or conception that makes too much sense that clears away all the mystery, then we've done something wrong because right. this is a mysterious doctrine as it's been passed down to us, and it ought to be. Yeah, and I think I think some people who are critics of Christianity will say, "Well, you're just playing the mystery card because you don't you, because you don't like the fact that you can't have something that's one and three at one and the same time." And if you were just intellectually honest, then you would realize that you're just committed to something that's incoherent. Right. And so, playing the mystery card is not going to get you anywhere. Mm-hmm. Um, but I I tend to think that that's that's far too quick um, because, of course, there are all sorts of other non-theological things that are deeply mysterious to us as human beings Um, and it may just be it wouldn't be that weird to think that just as there are deep mysteries about the natural world that we can't fathom because at the current state of our uh, intellectual development we're just not capable of figuring figuring it out it would be surprising to think that if that's the case in the natural world 
um, that it should be the case in the theological world as well, uh, especially in the theological world, you might think, in as much as we're dealing with um, God who is going to be mysterious to his creatures. We're not going to be able to fathom or get, get at God if there is this massive ontological gulf between us and him. And, I mean, there are analogs to that in, in the created world in various ways. I mean, think of, for example, um, the enormous amount of ink that's been spilt in the philosophy of mind trying to figure out consciousness. Right. And of course, people have got various views, and you can you can figure it out, you can figure it out in inverted commas by dissolving it and saying there isn't such a thing. Mm-hmm. Uh, you can figure it out by explaining it away. Um, but you know, the problem of consciousness remains the hard problem for the philosophy of mind in the neurosciences, and trying to give some account of that is proving extremely elusive. Um, now, some philosophers of mind, um, like Colin McGinn, have argued the reason why it's proving elusive is because we just don't have the hardware with which to figure it out at mm-hmm. this point in time. Uh, and so he's a kind of mysterian about mind. Yeah. And other people have followed his suit. What I'm suggesting, in a way, is a, is a similar sort of approach to the doctrine of the Trinity, that we, we treat the doctrine of the Trinity as something which is, unsurprisingly, mysterious. And so we're not going to be able to really fathom the doctrine of the Trinity, the best that we can do is is confess the doctrine of the Trinity as we find it handed down to us from um, the, the kind of classical uh, synthesis of the great ecumenical councils. So yes, we want to say that God is one. We, we're monotheists. Uh, we want to say God's one in essence. And yes, we want to say there are three divine persons. Um, and yes, we want to confess that those things are both true of God and that, there's, that, that it's not incoherent to confess both of those things. But if you press us to give a detailed account of what we mean by divine persons or what we mean by divine essence, we're very quickly going to be, be coming to the end of explanation. Yeah. We can say certain things. I'm not saying that we give up theologizing. We can certainly say certain things. I don't think it's inappropriate for us to try and say certain things about the divine nature with respect to the Trinity. But... We have to be intellectually humble about what we actually get at with respect yeah. to the nature. Yeah. Well, this is so great. Uh, when when your book, Analyzing Doctrine, first came out, I did not have any time to read it, but I found myself reading it anyways. And so I thought, <laughs> well, I have to incorporate this into my work. And I was in uh, Tom McCall's class, uh, Trinity oh, and yeah. Atonement. Yeah. There, yeah. And so I thought, okay, great. I, I got the chapter of Trinity. And uh, it seems like what, what you and, and uh, guys like James Anderson are doing, uh, to use Plantinga's kind of formulation, you're working on the de jure uh, objection that this is irrational. And you say, no, no, of course, it's not irrational because of other doctrines we have. You don't cut corners off your theology. You add more theology and show why it makes sense. Right. So what I try to do is add uh, the de facto there and trying to match the mystery um, in the Trinity with the mystery that we find in reality. And just just pulling on the the problem of the one and many that pops up in in logic, you know, is there one logics or logics? And yeah. so so doing exactly what you were just talking about with nature, there's mystery here, and then matching it kind of in a Bavinkian uh, unity and diversity type type sense. Uh, yeah, yeah, that's great. So we'll see. I don't know uh, how much uh, Doctor McCall liked that or not, but um, I I love what you're doing. I love this project. And thank you. Oh, a, thank you. well, a difference. So this is. Um, a difference between you and Anderson is Anderson talks about incomprehensibility and you right. use the phrase transcendence. Right. And I wanted to see um, in your conception of transcendence, and I, I think I know what you mean, but I wanted to get you yeah. to, to talk about it. Does transcendence entail incomprehensibility and uh, does transcendence in your view entail ineffability? 
So I think those are three distinct concepts. I think you could have a concept of transcendence without a concept of ineffability uh, or incomprehensibility. Um, they do often go together, particularly mm -hmm. in historic theology, but you could have a doctrine of transcendence without them, for example. So you could say something like this, um, God's transcendent, and by that we mean he's, he's distinct from the created order. Um, he's other than the created order. Um, so that he's, he's, as it were, conceptually apart from the created order, going back to this massive ontological gulf that we've been talking about. Um, but that doesn't necessarily mean that God's either incomprehensible or ineffable. It doesn't, in other words, it doesn't necessarily mean that we cannot comprehend anything about the divine nature or that we cannot say anything sensible about the divine nature, which is what those two words mean. Um, it could just be that we can know certain things about God's nature, but just a very limited number of those of those things. So that that certainly seems to me to be a plausible way to go. And indeed, there are there are theologians today who would who would want to do something like that, right? They do want to affirm God's transcendence, but in a way that doesn't imply these other things. That doesn't seem to me to be incoherent. Um, however, I'm of the mind that um, thinks that these things ought to be taken very seriously. They're very deeply embedded in the Christian tradition. They're not something superficial that you can just skim off the top of the tradition. Right. Right. But that uh, usually when God's transcendence is talked about, it's talked about in terms that do imply God's being incomprehensible. In other words, literally such that we can't comprehend him and ineffable, literally such that we can't say anything um, really of the divine nature that, that really, you know, gets at something in the divine nature, so to speak. Um, uh, so it does seem to me that, that that's something we need to take seriously. It's something I want to take seriously. Um, and so it seems to me that a doctrine transcendence has to end up saying, when we talk about God being other than the created order, wholly other than the created order, we have to understand that by that we mean that God in his essence, in his nature, is not accessible to human beings, absent divine revelation. Okay, so that's an important qualifier for Christian theology, of course. If God reveals himself to us, then, of course, we do have certain things that we can know about the divine nature in a qualified way, perhaps mm -hmm. in an analogical way like Thomas Aquinas. Amen, yeah. Um, but they're going to be very, it's going to be very limited, right? And it's going to depend on God taking the initiative and in revealing himself to us. Otherwise, we're going to be completely clueless. You know, we're going to be like the Israelites at the base of Mount Horeb who just see the fiery cloud on the top of the mountain when Moses goes up and they say, we don't want to go up there. Okay? Right, right. We really want to know anything more than they're not going to see anything. Yeah. Um, so I think if we bear that sort of approach in mind, then um, we should be able to have a, a right and appropriate sense of reverence when we come to thinking about the divine nature and also be open to the prospect that God reaches down graciously and speaks to us, which is what, of course, we do find in Scripture and supremely in Christ. If we think that Christ is God incarnate, then when we see and hear what Christ has reported as, as saying and doing in the canonical Gospels, we see and hear what, one of the divine persons of the Trinity speaking to us. Yeah. That seems to me to be one of the most profound and one of the most um, liberating aspects of Christian theology, this idea that at the heart of the Christian Gospel is this claim that God draws near to us and becomes one of us in order that we may participate in the divine life. And that seems to me to be, uh, you know, one of these ways in which transcendence can somehow be married with 
its opposite, imminence. Yeah. God draws near to us in Christ and communicates something truly about the of the divine nature to us. That's a, that's a wonder, it seems to me, yeah. of the Christian gospel. Yeah, so fantastic. Uh, so, man, there's so many ways to go with this, but um, getting to uh, to to your um, how you set up your Mysterianism, your your take on chasing Trinitarian Mysterianism, uh, transcendence is doing some work there and saying, and and you referenced uh, the Flatland, which uh, yeah. again for any C.S. Lewis fans out there will will uh, see that nod to him, that. Uh, uh, like a flatlander trying to uh, understand a three-dimensional person who reveals himself to him, or like you know someone a two-dimensional character looking at a triangle and then uh, a yeah. uh, oh man, I should say circle. Let's say circle, and then a sphere comes down. I don't yeah. know what a, a three-dimensional triangle is. I forgot. A prism cone. Yeah, prism. Okay, um, but the the circle comes down and says, "Hey, look, I live in three dimensions." And the two-dimensional figure is like, "What? What are you talking about?" It's like you're gonna have to take my word for it. You live in two, I live in three. I'm communicating this to you. Uh, is that is that is that what transcendence is doing for us? And does it need to yeah. be, uh, does it need to have a strong sense of incomprehensibility in order to do the work you want it to do? I think it does. And uh, you're right. I think the um, the example of uh, of Flatland uh, is, a, is a help. And of course, um, George Abbott, who wrote Flatland, who was a headmaster and a, and a mathematics teacher, was had an apologetic reason for writing it in the 19th century in order to try and, I suppose, get at some of these things. But, uh, but yeah, I think one of the one of the ways in which it's helpful to trot out flatland, and of course there are other um, Christian thinkers who who use the example of flatland in their work, in with with some um, terrific examples, people like Hud Hudson and Alan Mustard and others. Um, what it does for us is it shows, it gives us a picture, it gives us a kind of conceptual picture, if you like, um, that helps us to see how it might be that we finite creatures might find something existing outside of our space and time like god yeah utterly incomprehensible unless this entity somehow enters our realm and makes himself known to us in ways that we can comprehend and that's of course exactly what flatland's about these plain figures living on in the flatland whether they're circles or squares or triangles can't comprehend three dimensions they just don't have the third dimension they don't have a sense of depth so when they see the sphere they don't see a sphere they see a circle they just see a kind of section of the sphere presented to them on their two-dimensional plane but as the sphere appears to them coming down to their level so to speak uh, they were able to see something of the sphere in two dimensions and in a way that's i suppose analogous to god drawing near to us in christ in order that we can apprehend something of who God is in the limited finitude of our own existence. Yeah. I, I really love that. And I love to, to pair that with uh, like an authorial analogy as well, that the author writing himself in and then telling yeah. you all about himself and how he's, he's written the, the story. Yeah. Uh, I, I love it. it. It all works so well uh, with everything that I like. So uh, I've, I've really appreciated it. Does, does this view of, of transcendence and maybe the, the necessity of, of revelation um, I don't want to get you in trouble here, so feel free not to ask it or answer it. But does this mess with like the doctrine of uh, the beatific vision, seeing God in Himself? Um, 
Not necessarily. It depends. Uh, it depends how you construe the beatific vision. I mean, I think, like divine simplicity, there's not a single view of the beatific vision. There's been very interesting work done on the beatific vision recently by people like Hans Borsmer. Hmm. Um, uh, he's got a big book out that, that came out a few years ago on this, which is really quite fascinating. Um, but I suppose you might put it this way: that our apprehension of God is always mediated through our physicality and through the world in which we inhabit and that won't change in the world to come yeah. uh, in the world to come our apprehension of the divine will still be mediated through um the human natures that we have and that's even true of people who have in the in the tradition a very exalted view of the beatific vision if you think of someone like to go back to an example we used earlier thomas aquinas um on his account of the beatific vision we have to have our bodies in order to um, to be who we are, to be human beings, to be human, the human persons that we are. Um, and in the world to come, our souls and bodies are rightly configured, and somehow we have this kind of direct uplink to um, the divine presence, but we don't apprehend God through our bodily senses in the same way that you and I are interacting through our bodily senses. It's something else that's going on. Nevertheless, we need the physical body because we're physical organisms in order to be in a position to be hooked up to the um, to the divine presence in that way. But it's still, in a sense, a, a mediated apprehension uh, in as much as you have to have the physical body in order to be in a position to enjoy the beatific vision. Okay. Um, so we're not... Um, we're not we're not wholly immaterial beings like angels who uh, exist in the presence of God, and so I think we have to bear in mind that whatever account we give of uh, the apprehension of God in, in the world to come, it's going to be if we have a traditional doctrine of the resurrection, it's going to be uh, a picture that involves us uh, in some way apprehending God through the medium, as it were, of our flesh. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, that's really helpful. Um, all right, so so getting back to the two, so we got we got uh, uh, we have simplicity here. And now we have some Trinity in here. We get some mystery. Um, when we when we bring these two together in our thought, does simplicity do any conceptual lifting for us and our understanding of the Trinity, or do we just hold them both in tension and then appeal to this uh, transcendence in order to to justify them? I think they are intention in much traditional theology. And of course, one of the holy grails of uh, a doctrine of God is to try and find a way to, to conceptualize the divine nature in such a way that you have both simplicity and trinity. Mm-hmm. And that's a very difficult thing to do, I think. Um, the fact that it's a very difficult thing to do doesn't mean it can't be done or that it's incoherent. Of course, it just might be something that we're not at this point in time capable of doing. Um, you ask what work the doctrine of divine simplicity does, I think traditionally the reason why divine simplicity was latched upon uh, by early patristic theologians and then um, carried forward in the tradition is that the doctrine of divine simplicity um, ensures that um, that the Christian account of God is anchored in monotheism. This is brought out, at least from my experience, anyway, it's brought out very nicely by the historian of doctrine, Richard Muller, who wrote this four-volume post-Reformation Reform Dogmatics. And he's got a lovely section there on um, divine simplicity in which he argues, amongst other things, about, you know, how there's this variety of different views within certain sort of um, bounds on the doctrine of divine simplicity. But he also points out this this very point that... um, 
we need a doctrine of divine simplicity, or at least traditionally it's been thought we need a doctrine of divine simplicity in order to anchor our doctrine of God in monotheism. And the worry is if you cut the cord to divine simplicity, then your doctrine of the Trinity drifts off towards tritheism. Right. Right. So it's a way of anchoring Christian, the Christian account of, of God in the kind of monotheism, the, the root of monotheism that is Judaism, right? That is yeah. growing out of. So we want to hang on to that. But at the same time, we want to give some account of this differentiation within the divine nature that is the, the persons of the Trinity. Um, so whatever we say about the divine unity is got to also be able to make room for us to, to, to describe God in terms of three persons. And of course, question is how we go about doing that yeah uh, th those people who emphasize this strong doctrine of divine simplicity unsurprisingly end up with a very attenuated or thin account of the divine persons as a consequence so thomas aquinas thinks that you've got the um this strong doctrine of divine simplicity and the divine persons are seen to be subsistent relations mm -hmm. in the godhead now a relation you know is is something that you has two relata you know such as you know my son being s taller than i whereas previously he was smaller than i mm -hmm. there's the re the relation is between m me and my son and the, the the relation having to do with his size relative to me um so on that way of thinking the divine persons are relations like that but they're subsistent relations now things are said to subsist if they exist independent of other things like you are independent of me and so you might be said to subsist as a divine person mm. um so the oddity about the view that thomas ends up with is uh that god strangely has relations that subsist they exist independently of other things in god which is weird because usually we think relations only exist when you've got two things which, right. which bear this relation one to another mm -hmm. um but in a sense he's driven to that sort of a view partly because of course he takes very seriously the tradition and what the tradition says about things but partly also because he wants to hang on to the strong doctrine of divine simplicity yeah. Um, so I think there's there's going to be a cost. If you want to hold a strong doctrine of some divine simplicity and the Trinity, the cost is you're going to have to find some way of pressing the diversity in the Godhead towards the one. Yeah. Conversely, if you want to emphasize the threeness of the divine persons, as many contemporary social Trinitarians do, then unsurprisingly, you're going to de-emphasize the, the kind of oneness element. In fact, mm -hmm. some, some people are going to want to jettison the doctrine of divine simplicity like William Hasker mm -hmm. in order to hang on to the doctrine, their understanding of the doctrine of the Trinity that emphasizes the difference within the Godhead. And to that extent, then you're pushed in the, in the direction of differentiation and away from the direction of oneness. Yeah. And much depends here on which of these two poles between divine unity and divine trinity or triunity, uh, tri which of those two poles takes precedence in your accounting when it comes to thinking about the divine nature. And to the extent you push in one direction or the other, you're going to have to make accommodations one way or another. Yeah. Well, this is why I love your work and even that language of Trinitarian Mysterianism, because I... I, I follow much uh, closer into the, the vein of like Van Til, and uh, he, he talks about an equal ultimacy between the unity and diversity. And, and yes. I thought it was it was so original to him, but then I started reading Bavink and saw it was in Bavink, and he's just trying right. to say what Bavink said. And and because of uh, transcendence, because of incomprehensibility from work like uh, you and Anderson, uh, I can say, well, 
it would make it makes sense. I want to say there's an equal ultimacy. I don't want to be drawn over to to the unity or the diversity too much, yeah. and it makes sense because of this doctrine of transcendence that I wouldn't be able to fully understand. And then what 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 my project is, Lord willing, you know who knows, but is to show that even though it is a mystery, it it matches the mystery that we find in reality and the right. problem of the one and the many that we see everywhere around us. And it's it's really what Bob Inc was getting at, anyways, with the organic motif. Right. Uh, so it's great. So I, I'm so appreciative to you. Um, are you are you also trying to say that that we don't want to say too much, or or do you find yourself leaning one way or the other? I like the Barvinkian idea of equal ultimacy. I think mm. that's, and I think you know, as you say, there's there's uh, there's ways in which that reflects a strand in the Christian tradition. I, I remember a, a discussion I had some years ago now with George Hunsinger from Princeton, um, who was making a similar kind of point. You don't want to, although his point was with respect to the, the doctrine of the Trinity as such, but he was emphasizing that you don't want to lead with one pole, you know, unity or diversity, that both those things have got to be ultimate in some sense. Otherwise, uh, you do end up with a kind of lopsided account of the doctrine of God. And I think in principle, that's right. Of course, the trick is trying to find some way of articulating that. That's mm-hmm. Difficulty, but I certainly think that um, Barbink and those who've taken up a similar sort of idea are expressing um, a sort of deep thought that you find in much of the t- Christian tradition on this topic. Yeah, hey amen. That's that's huge. That that's a soundbite right there. Uh, I might have to clip that out. That's really big, uh, Doctor Chris. This has been so helpful. Just uh, having you, you know, help us think through this. So for for everyone listening, uh, again, the book is analyzing doctrine towards a systematic theology and uh it's a it's a great book i really enjoyed it it was it's good but it was also frustrating because i didn't have time to read it at the time when i was reading it but it was it's very very good and again like i told uh dr ray um those of us following in your wake trying to follow your footsteps you know kind of i've had it third hand maybe uh, through dr arcadi who who you worked with um but uh, some of us want to uh, show our philosophical chops and make everything into propositions. And what we've, what I've really appreciated about you and Dr. Ray is that you guys are kind of getting away from that and you're still writing with just as much clarity, but it's actually readable and enjoyable. So uh, <laughs> yeah, I really appreciate that. You're really a, a good example for a lot of us young cats coming up. I really appreciate that. Thank you. I'm, I'm very yeah. grateful for that. Thank you very much. Well, awesome. Um, okay, so this has been Parker's Pensies. Uh, Lord willing, we can talk about this some more, but for now that's going to have to do it. Uh, And as always, all glory to God. 